Welcome to the Darrell McLean Show. I'm your host, Darrell McLean, and let's get into our episode. Is fully listener supported independent media that won't lead you to tribalism. You can get a membership for as little as three dollars a month at www.patreon.com slash the Darrell McLean show. We talk about a lot of serious topics on this show. One very serious topic is women's health. One company that stood out to me was vslay.com because the owner is very transparent about her own struggles in the women's health department and has great customer service, great deals, and frequent sales. You can check her out, her great customer service, products about women's health, and frequent sales at www.vslay.com. That is www.vslay.com. Welcome to the Darrell McLean Show. I'm your host, Darrell McLean. Today is Tuesday, the 5th of December of 2023. You are listening to episode 377. And let's get into our episode. On this vote, the yeas are 311, the nays are 114, with two recorded as present. Two-thirds voting in the affirmative, the resolution is adopted, and a motion to reconsider is laid upon the table. The clerk will notify the governor of the state of New York of the action of the House. <laughs> Under Clause 5D of Rule 20, the chair announces to the House that in light of the expulsion of the gentleman from New York, Mr. Santos, the whole number of the House is now 434. And there we actually have it. The gentleman from New York, um, George Santos, has been expelled from Congress. So this is a big deal because in U.S. history, this has only happened six times. And I think this has never happened to a Republican in the history of the country. And it has never happened for something like an indictment. Now, and, and, I, and when I mean it has never happened for something like an indictment, when this happened previously... It was for a conviction of something of high crimes and misdemeanors or even something like treason. Never for indictments because, after all, indictments are just accusations that have not yet been proven. And in a constitutional republic, you are innocent into proven guilty. 
So this was very shocking to me because it is very rare that somebody in Washington, D.C. is reportedly seems to be being held accountable for something that they do. Now, that being said, I will say I'm not fairly certain if this is the precedent that wants uh, that we wanted to set. And we're going to get into a little bit of that in a coming segment where I'm going to go into detail why this may be a problem. But as far as the facts stand now, uh, George Santos or uh, George DeVolder or whatever his real name will be or is has been expelled from the United States Congress. So this is the analysis that I want to lay bare in long form about George Santos and the fraud and the story of what is New York's lying now ex-congressman. Here's one of the most difficult questions to answer about human nature. Why is it that we tend to fall so much for the little lies, but for the very big lie? And why is it that when we are caught telling a lie that's obviously a lie, that we stick to it? Well, one person who could be asked this is the former congressman now, George Santos. Or at least we think he's the former congressman, George Santos. He might be the former congressman, George DeVolder or George DeVolder Santos. We simply aren't sure, and that's part of this story. If you look up a basic biographical references to George Santos, one of the first things you're going to find out is that he is the first Republican and only the sixth member of Congress to be expelled by the body. That happened on Friday, and it requires a two-third vote by the House of Representatives, and at least Two-thirds of his fellow members of the House voted to expel him, and that required not only the overwhelming vote among the Democrats, but also a significant number of Republicans. They voted to oust one of their own, but then again, they never really considered him to be one of their own. There's a huge story behind this, but at least some of the facts to be stipulated before we can go further And the fact is that the reason that George Santos was removed from office now is that he was just immediately caught in a pattern of misrepresentation and lies. It was not that he was just now accused of massive wrongdoings, including all kinds of financial crimes. No, the reason is that he is is that the House Ethics Investigation finally offered a sort of pre-verdict on George Santos because he is now subject of a massive federal indictment, a massive indictment that includes 23 counts, and that means 23 felonies, which means 23 serious crimes. Now, as you look at the constitutional measure for removing someone from an office, it often comes down to high crimes and misdemeanors, but we're not talking about it that in this case. The allegation of misdemeanors we're talking about high crimes, and you're looking at George Santos or Georgia Volter, you're looking at one of the biggest morality tales of our time. And by the way, even as he was removed from the United States House of Representatives on Friday, you can be sure of this, we have not heard the last of George Santos. Now, one reason we haven't heard the last from him is that soon 
as after the first of the year going to we're going to go into the process of a criminal trial and it's going to be a soap opera trial. But the federal officials who are bringing the indictment are really clear and that they're expecting a conviction and that they've been pretty clear about the mounting evidence. Now, the reason that this has become such a huge story is because it turns out that George Santos was elected on the basis of a massive set of lies and not just a set of lies about what might be politically expedient, but a set of lies that went far beyond what any human reason would indicate. When it comes to George Santos, it turns out that almost all of his adult life is built upon a complex of lies. And the more he did it, the better evidently he got at it. And there's so much here in the terms of our electoral process. For one thing, George Santos had actually run for Congress two years before he was elected in 2022. He didn't come very close to being elected at that time, but he evidently decided that he was likely to get away with all of the misrepresentations. So he ran again in 2022, and this time, as we shall see, he was elected to the House of Representatives. Now, when the massive lies became very public, it was embarrassing. In some sense, not so much to George Santos because it was not clear that he can be embarrassed. It was embarrassing to his fellow Republicans. It was embarrassing to many people who have voted for him in the 3rd Congressional District of New York, and that includes at least a large part of Long Island and Queens. But you're also looking at the fact that it was embarrassing to the Democratic Party. Why would it be embarrassing to the Democrats? It's because they supposedly do opposition research. But in this case, the juiciest target of opposition research in recent decades of American political history was entirely missed, or almost entirely missed, even by the Democrats who are basically working for the party in order to try to find political dirt in, in, you know, in the U.S. elections. But the dirt did not come out. It was just quite after the election rather than before. So Mark uh, Cusiano, who has written a recent book on George Santos entitled The Fabulous Lying, Hustling, Grifting, Stealing, and Very American Legend of George Santos. He summarizes this with these words. George Santos, the lying congressman, the man who made up almost everything, his college, his diploma, and his Wall Street jobs, his Holocaust-fleeing grandparents, his education at a fancy private high school, Horsemane, the four employees lost at the Pulse nightclub shooting, the Broadway producer gig for Spider-Man, and on and on. Each claim more like a mirage, at best at wild exaggerations. He is a fabulist. So these were all just stories he told. Well, indeed, he is a fabulist. And indeed, at least that list, there were just stories that he told. And there were other stories that he told, but actually his life might be, if anything, more interesting than the lies that he told. No more accurate, but more interesting. When the story of George Santos's misrepresentations as outright lies began to break, it came shortly after he was elected to the 3rd Congressional District in an election that, by the way, would have made history in the United States anyway because George Santos is a openly gay and the Democratic candidate who was running against him was also a man who was openly gay. And so this is in particular a congressional election. You had two openly gay men running against each other, and that does not happen every day, even in the United States in 2022, 
now in 2023. But long before he was elected, and actually long before he even ran two years prior in 2020, George Santos was suspected by some, at least uh, some people, of living a network of lies that just be- that was just uh, because about everything he told about himself, it just didn't add up. He claimed to be a graduate not only of Baruch College he didn't attend, but he had been a student of an elite Horace Mann school he wasn't. Educational records are actually uh, accurately kept. And it turns out he did not have a job that he claimed at the elite financial institution known as Goldman and Sachs. It turns out he wasn't wealthy, but somehow he did end up with at least a line of credit and apparently lots of money. It also turned out that when the story began to break that he had spent several years in Brazil, a video showed up to, of him in drag and accusations following him having to do with financial fraud, including writing bad checks. And even when he um, denied that it was true, he eventually had to more or less acknowledge that it was true. But he claimed that all these stories are being told against him in an extreme example of a massive conspiracy to try to bring down a duly elected member of Congress. Now, there are so many issues here. For one thing, everything about this man's life just begins to break down under investigation. Virtually nothing he said about himself, even what he wasn't important to his election or his political career, none of it basically makes much sense. He lied about having participated in team sports for schools he didn't attend. And it turns out he claimed to have been on the teams that themselves did not exist because the school he claimed to have attended did not even have men's teams in that sport. In this case, particularly, he was talking about volleyball. He claimed to have had both knees replaced because of injuries in volleyball, which he didn't play in a school he didn't attend in a sport that they did not offer. All of this in New York City where there are plenty of investigators. You have hundreds and hundreds of reporters. And again, you have a competitive political situation. And frankly, both parties ended up with egg on their face because in this case, the Republicans, he was a Republican candidate and then a Republican office holder. And then also for the Democrats, because they basically had the greatest opportunity to expose a fraud. And not only did they miss it, they continued to miss it for some time. It turns out that back in Brazil, his family was originally from Brazil. It turns out that back in Brazil, he had actually confessed to the crime. But by the time the court wanted to act on it, they couldn't find Mr. Santos. And that's because he was presumably back in the United States and at this point in New York involved in another fraud. Now, when he was first shown the evidence of his guilt in Brazil, he said, quote, I am not a criminal here nor in Brazil, or in any jurisdiction in the world. Absolutely not. That didn't happen. Except, of course, it did. Now, Santos's claim to have to at least Jewish ancestors who have been uh, when it was convenient to be Jewish. And that has a lot to do with the politics of getting elected in the 3rd District of New York, which has a considerably Jewish population. Now, getting the Jewish vote by identifying with Jewish ancestors could be huge. But when he was confronted with the fact that none of his ancestors are Jewish, Santos told the New York Post, quote, I never claimed to be Jewish. I am Catholic. Because I learned my maternal family had a Jewish background, I said I am Jewish, as in Jew-ish. Oh, oh, okay. So exactly the same thing. When he eventually had to admit to at least some of the lies, 
He did so by saying everybody does it. He said, I didn't graduate from any institution of higher learning. I am embarrassed. I am sorry for having embezzled my resume. He then added, we do stupid things in life. Well, when it comes to George Santos, it's hard to think about things he has done that aren't stupid. And frankly, it's hard to know what things might actually be true. There is likely to become more clarified in the prosecution's case in this trial, which is going to be coming in at least expected in the next year. But he is already out of the House. The House voted for only the sixth time in the history by a two-third margin to expel one of their members. And there's a lot to unpack when it comes to this. So let's think about the embezzlement of a resume, the the invention of an entire life. Let's talk about the fact that he did all this with the goal of gaining socially and gaining economically. By the way, among many things that are alleged against George Santos is the fact that he ran a number of scams, including one related to pets long before he decided to run for Congress. It also turns out that he was looking for an opportunity to be a fabulous too. So come up with a massive lie and misrepresentation to be a grifter of all grifters, he somehow looked to the U.S. House of Representatives and thought, now that looks like a great opportunity. And that, it tells us something that we need to pay attention to about our political situation. And if you're looking for any kind of pattern in politics, you have to recognize that lying about your resume, misrepresenting your story, embezzling your story for political advantage... Well, that's a very long bipartisan tradition. And you're going to be looking at those who have been known to have done this for decades. The first place you would look, actually, would be the Oval Office. And even with the current president of the United States, President Joe Biden, who has been known throughout his lifetime to have claimed many things that were absolutely untrue and easily proved to be untrue. He claimed to have conversations with a man who turns out to have died years before. He claims that his father, who seems to be available always for an updated quote, he claims that his father at one point when Joe Biden was 16 saw two men kissing. And when Joe Biden evidently thought this was a great thing, his father said, Joe, that's just another form of love. Now, that would have been decades ago and almost politically implausible. But Joe Biden has claimed to seen things as vice president under Barack Obama that he didn't actually see it that have experienced things that journalists who were present with him at the time knew and that he had not experienced. But he gets away with it because he has the persona of Jess being Joe. Now, everybody knows that Joe tells whoppers of stories, and Joe is now president of the United States. Joe Biden also has misrepresented his academic background, and that's been clarified because of academics records are pretty comprehensively accurately kept. Now, if you're going to lie about something, and I'll just say this as somebody who admires people in academia, as somebody who one day wants to uh, work at an academic institution, do not lie about your academic record because somewhere, someone's keeping account. But this also points to another abnormally in, 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 in uh, 2023. So right, let's go back to 2022 when George Santos was elected. When you look at the um, days and the massive power of social media, when you look at the search engines that you take about just every life, you know, investable, where in the world was the curiosity about George Santos? 
because as it has become abundantly clear, it's at the time a lot of curious actually quite do, but very responsible. The irresponsible thing was to fail to follow up, but that's why people did, including so many in the media. So what's behind the human tendency to believe fabulous stories? Why do we buy into big lies? But that's the point that something else is really massive as far as a worldview significance. We tend to want to believe fabulous stories. That's true of human nature. Somehow, embedded in our human experience is a tendency to believe very big, fabulous tales. And as far as the fact that the word fabulous means someone who weaves together such fabulous stories, such a fabricated story that it is simply too good not to believe. Now, literature throughout the centuries has actually dealt with this particular pattern. Broadway musicals like Music Man, uh, going back to the 20th century, and of course, an entire series of political scandals in the United States and elsewhere. And of course, politics is not the only place these kinds of fabulous tales emerge. And those who tell them, you have virtually every arena of life this pattern. It's just in politics, it turns out that that's way to sort circuit the system. So just think of uh, Frank Abengale and a famous movie that became very well known, Catch Me If You Can. And Frank Abengale went through a succession of absolutely fraudulent presentations in different careers, including one in medicine and one as an airline pilot. Now you would think that one would be impossible as an airline passenger or as a patient. I'm sure you'd hope that that would be impossible, but Frank Abigail's tale was not false when he was caught. It was just all the stories he had been telling all along, because who would pose to be a medical doctor? Who's not? Who would pose to be an airline pilot? Who's not? Turns out, the answer to that question actually had a name. Furthermore, the story just gets more interesting because it was law enforcement officials who began to work with him in order to figure out what did we miss, which turns out to be answered by the words just about everything. It takes a spectacular fall to bring about a kind of clarity that's now happening with George Santos because if you put him behind a camera, if you put him behind a microphone, he seems so self-confident that somehow embedded in our human nature is the assumption that if someone is lying to us, they wouldn't lie to us with so much self-confidence. They wouldn't continue to lie to us. They wouldn't look us in the eye and lie to us. They wouldn't look at us on a television camera and lie to us. And yet, over and over again, they do. Nonetheless, when you're looking at George Santos, you're looking at something of the normal scale. You're looking at something that's so far off the normal scale for two reasons. Number one, he told such a absolute grandiose lie. He continued to pile up lies upon lies. He told lies that were contradictory if anyone was listening closely. But secondly, he was elected to the United States Congress. I repeat myself, he was elected to the United States Congress. And it just tells you that when you're looking at the grifting and the fabulism on this scale, it turns out that you can get away with a lot of things on the way to the United States House of Representatives. So, in the perspective of the 
Christian worldview that I try to sit under. How do we understand this? Number one, how do we understand who can, who, how can we tell that this is a kind of scale of lies? Well, we understand this because it's bigger. And by bigger, I just mean it's kind of the way sinfulness works. So sin itself is a fabulous endeavor. That is to say it attracts bigger sins. It leads to bigger things. And that is the one of the things the Puritans describe as the inceding sinfulness of sin. The problem isn't just that we sin. The problem is that it creates a concrete ring of greater sinfulness. It's like quicksand that simply pulls you further and further in. But here's where the other uh, biblical worldview also reminds us. Sin is also a social reality. It's not just that it sucks in the center, in the sense into a deeper and deeper involvement. It is that it also involves so many others. It's one sense we as human beings are co-conspirators in our depravities. And when you look at it this way, you can say, well, who also is guilty in this? And as you think about it, you'll come up with a lot of people. But what I have said that it is a very, very long list, and most of them would absolutely not claim themselves to be supporters or enablers in George Santos in any way, but somehow they were. But as we think about the lie, just let us remind ourselves that if we didn't know much about lying before the 20th century, we certainly have an abundant evidence in the 20th century now of how lies work. The bigger the lie, sometimes that's the more effective the lie. You can think ideological lies. You can think about espionage lies. You can think of political lies. George Orwell, one of the most pro, uh, prophetic writers of the 20th century, referred to a thing he called the big lie. And he wasn't alone. The big lie seems to be more attractive than the small lie because, after all, who would lie to us about something so important? Now, Orwell's point was, well, for one thing, a totalitarian government. He, he remains some pretty big issues to consider. One of them has to do with whether or not the House of Representatives was right to expel George Santos, whether they were right to expel George Santos. And by that, I mean, we talked about this long, no doubt. And I know many of, of you were thinking, well, of course, the House of Representatives was right to expel George Santos. And I mentioned he was only the sixth member of the House ever to be expelled, the first Republican ever to be expelled. But it's also important to recognize that George Santos was the first member of the United States House of Representatives to be expelled, who was neither officially designated to be a traitor to the United States of America or convicted of high crimes and misdemeanor. George Santos has been indicted, indicted on at least 23 serious charges, but he has not yet been found guilty of anything. And this is something new in American politics. As a new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson was quite clear about the fact he did not think this was a healthy precedent. And before you say, well, that's a ridiculous argument, just consider the fact that our constitutional form of government, we still have to take into account the fact that the majority of voters who voted in 2022 congressional election in New York's third district voted for George Santos or at least who they thought was George Santos. And reversing the decision made by voters is in no small thing in a form of government 
that is constitutional. Now, did the House act rightly or wrongly? This is a judgment call, but it's also something that's likely to be clarified over time. There are many people I know who think that there's any chance, they don't think there's any chance that George Santos won't be convicted of these crimes, given the overwhelming evidence and the fact that he basically self-incriminated himself of, uh, I'll just say, several times. So the, the, the thing that I want us to wrestle with is why is Santos out of Congress while Senator Bob Menendez is still in office? The ousting of George Santos raises this big question, but nonetheless, it raises the huge question about how the process can be misused. The concern about George Santos is not just about George Santos and whether his real name is that, but there's another issue here. And let's just think about that not only in the House of Representatives, but let's think about that when it comes to the United States Senate. Because in the United States Senate, it is a Democratic senator from New Jersey named Robert Menendez, who is also under indictment by federal authorities and frankly on charges that constitutionally and historically are far more egregious than the fabulism of George Santos. George Santos has been indicted on relatively what we would say a routine uh, white collar financial crimes of fraud and all the rest of the misrepresentations. When it comes to Robert Menendez, he has now been charged with being a false representative of a foreign nation, even as he was in leadership of the United States Senate. So how simply, and you have to simply ask yourself, to ask, what has George Santos must be asking? Why is he out and Robert Menendez is still in? And in order to answer that question, you have to ask the members of the United States Senate and particularly the Democratic majority in the United States Senate. Why is George Santos out if Robert Menendez is still in? And by the way, this is the second massive scandal to involve the Democratic senator from New Jersey, Robert Menendez. So that is my analysis on the George Santos situation, on the uh, Bob Menendez situation, who I do believe uh, if we have created the standard that somebody should step down because they have been indicted, I will be patiently waiting for Senator Menendez's resignation. And if when I talk about political power... The Democrats run New Jersey. They, they, the governor has every authority as a governor to appoint a Democrat. Anyway, right back with more on the Darrell McLean Show. The Darrell McLean Show has a voicemail number for comments on anything you would like to say on the show. The phone number is 757-310-7303. Let's go to the voicemail and see what we have in store for us today. New message. Hey, Daryl. I thought I would call in and give you a labor market update, sort of high level here. Um, you might want to keep it. Uh, job seekers are beginning to say it's harder to find a job now. Job switchers and job stayers see little difference in pay. Job switchers are no longer getting big pay increases. And finally, the number of job openings has decreased in the wake of higher interest rates. Okay, have a great day. I always look forward to listening to your show. Stay with us. We'll be right back. It goes without saying that this show does not happen without listener support. Support the Darrell McLean Show by going to 
www.patreon.com and getting a membership for $3. Or you can go to buzzsprouts.com slash the Jerome McLean Show and hit the subscribe button and join there. Many ways to donate to the show. Independent media that won't reinforce tribalism. We have one planet. Nobody is leaving. So let us reason together. www.patreon.com slash the Jerome McLean Show or go to Bus Sprouts and to the Jerome McLean Show and subscribe. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you for the information. For anybody who uh, did not hear what was said, the economic update from the caller said that the um, if you have a job, you might want to keep it. If job seekers are beginning to say it's harder to find a job now. Job switchers and job stayers see very little difference in pay. Job switchers are no longer getting big pay increases. And finally, the number of job openings has increased in the wake of higher interest rates. So that is a great observation. I don't necessarily uh, know if that is a good or bad thing when it comes to uh, the overall economic outlook for the country. Uh, And so we're going to dig deep into that on an episode where I'm going to try to explore this concept of what has been called Bidenomics, and we're going to try to discuss if that has been a good or bad thing for the country. And uh, but thank you for the statement on the Darrell McLean voicemail. If you would like to uh, follow suit, like the last great great uh succinct voicemail you just heard you can do so by calling 757-310-7303 that's 757-310-7303 in our absence there were a lot of let's just say uh high profile deaths every life is important and every death is a significant loss for someone and when it comes to people who are famous or infamous or public figures. It is a very different circumstances. There is a old saying uh, that one should not speak ill of the dead. When it comes to certain public figures, that would make us almost have to take a vow of silence and it's something that can't be done when it comes to something like what we do here. So this leads me to talk about the first person that I'm going to um, explain, which is my disgust and how the media and um, a lot of team of conservatives have really joined hands to lionize Henry Kissinger who a lot of people have described as a notorious war criminal. The notorious U.S. diplomat was responsible for millions of deaths, and he died in peace on Wednesday at the age of 100. So the National Security Advisor and former Secretary of State under two presidents 
has long evaded accountability and even after death. But on Wednesday, the um, former Secretary of State and National Security Advisor and notorious war criminal responsible for deaths of millions happened to die. During his lifetime, Henry Kissinger prolonged the Vietnam War and expanded it to Cambodia and Laos, greenlit Indonesia, uh, bloodshed in East Timor and Pakistanians bloodshed in Bangladesh and supported military coups in Chile and in Argentina. According to Yale University historian Greg Grandin, author of the biography Kissinger's Shadow, the estimated death toll for the foreign policy advices tied to Kissinger is between 3 million and 4 million people. Yet the headlines following his death have been not surprisingly void of accountability. Publications from both the left and the right lionized Henry Kissinger. The Wall Street Journal credited Kissinger as a man who helped forge U.S. foreign policy during Vietnam and Cold Wars, while BBC called him the divisive diplomat who towered over world affairs. In a loaded headline, the Daily Mail lauded him as a Nobel Prize winner who stared down the Soviets while also labeling Kissinger as a very unlikely sex symbol. Now, elsewhere, major publications appear to gloss over Kissinger's war crimes, framing him as a venerable world-shaping figure who drew controversy and his relentless pursuits of U.S. interests. Fox News, for example, hailed him as a pioneer of policy of the uh, to uh, and the um, detente of the Soviet Union, who won a Nobel Prize in 1973 for negotiating the Paris Peace Accords to end the U.S. involvement in Vietnam. Now, while noting that some of his policies remain controversial, NPR highlighted Kissinger's unwavering commitment when advocating for bombing campaigns in Vietnam and Cambodia to strengthen the U.S. negotiating positions and touted him as a superstar ex-diplomat. Kissinger, who, you know, ingrated himself to various Democrats and Republican leaders for 50 years, was remembered fondly among some right-wing and conservative commentators as well. Stephen Miller, Trump's former senior advisor, declared on Wednesday, May God bless Henry Kissinger, who devoted his life to the pursuit of peace and comfort his family during the time of pain and loss. Meanwhile, the governor of South Dakota, Kristen Lean Nome, advised Fox News viewers to go learn a little bit more about him around your dinner table when you're driving in the car with your kids. Tell them a few Kissinger quotes that were used in strategic times. Now, Rudy Giuliani, New York's first city's former mayor, was indicated on racketeering charges with Trump against took to X formally to write. Henry Kissinger was not just the foremost expert on foreign policy, but he was a great teacher and someone I'm proud to have called friend. Another former New York mayor, Michael Bloomberg, weighed in on Thursday, lamenting Kissinger's death as a loss for our country and the world. Kissinger was such a fixture in New York's upper echelons, and the Yankees even eulogized him, writing in a statement that the organization is profoundly saddened by the loss. Not long before Kissinger died, uh, Graydon predicted the media's reaction to his death. Quote, the Cubans say there is no evil that lasts a hundred years, and Kissinger is making a run to prove them wrong. 
Graydon previously told that to Rolling Stones. There is no doubt he'll be hailed as a geopolitical strategist, even though he was bulged most cries, leading to escalation. Uh, he'll get credit for opening China, but that was de Gaulle's original idea and initiative. He'll be praised for uh, Dante and the successes, or Dantant and the successes, but he under undermined his own legacy by aligning with neoconservatives. And of course, he'll get off scot-free from Watergate, even though his obsession with Daniel Ellsberg really drove the crime. Now, I don't um, make such claims um, flippantly. I don't call people uh, war criminals, so on and so forth, without any forethought. So, and this is being said knowing that Henry Kissinger is the war criminal that is beloved by America's ruling class. The infamy of Nixon's foreign policy architect sits entirely besides that of history's worst mass murders, and a deeper shame is attached to the country that constantly seems to celebrate him. So measuring purely by confirmed kills, the worst mass murderer ever executed by the United States was a terrorist by the name of Timothy McVeigh on April 19th of 1995. Now, McVeigh uh, detonated a massive bomb at the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City, killing 168 people, including 19 children. The government of the United States then killed McVeigh by lethal injection in June of 2001. Whatever hesitation a state execution provokes, even over a man such as McVeigh, necessary questions about the legitimacy of killing even a unrepented soldier of white supremacy, his death provided a measure of closure to the mother of one of his victims. It's a period at the end of a sentence, said Kathleen Trinner, whose four-year-old son, or whose four-year-old was killed by McVeigh. Now that was uh, McVeigh, uh, who is in his own psychotic way, thought he was saving America, never remotely killed on scale of someone like Kissinger, the most revered American grand strategist of the second half of the 20th century. So, I'm going to go back to this Yale historian, uh, Greg Garden, the author of that biography, uh, Kissinger's Shadow, and he estimates that Kissinger's actions from 1969 through 1976, a period of eight brief years, when Kissinger made Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford's foreign policy as a national security advisor and secretary of state meant the end of between three and four million people. That includes crimes commission, he explained, as in Cambodia and in Chile, and omission, like greenlighting Indonesia's bloodshed in East Timor, Pakistan's bloodshed in Bangladesh, and the inauguration of American tradition of using and then abandoning the Kurdish people. The Cubans say that there is no evil that lasts a hundred years, like I said before, and Kissinger is making everything 
he can do to prove that statement wrong. So Graydon actually had an interview with the Rolling Stone, and he predicted, like I said, that he would Kissinger would be hailed this way, like he's being hailed by the media. So no infamy will find Kissinger on a day like today. Instead, in a demonstration why he was able to kill so many people and get away with it, the day of his passage will be a solemn one in Congress and shameful since Kissinger had reporters like CBS, Marvin Caleb, and the New York Times Hendrick Smith wiretap notorious newsrooms. Kissinger, a refugee from the Nazis who became a pedigree member of the Eastern Establishment, Nixon hated, was a practitioner of American greatness, and so the press lionized him as a cold-blooded genius who restored America's prestige from the agony of Vietnam. Note that not once in the half-century that follows Kissinger's departure from power did the millions of the United States killed matter for his reputation expect to confirm a ruthlessness that pundits occasionally find thrilling. America, like every empire, champions its state murderers. The only time I was ever um, around uh, anybody who had the displeasure of being in the same area Kissinger was at a detail at a security conference around 2015. He was surrounded by fawning army officers and ex-officials basking in the presence of, uh, I guess, what would be considered a statesman. Seymour Hirsch, the investigative reporter, was one of the most prominent exceptions to the fawning coverage of Kissinger. Watch journalist deference take shape as soon as Kissinger entered the White House in 1969. His social comings and goings could make a break a Washington party, Hirsch wrote in his biography, The Prince of Power. Reporters like the Times' James Redsons were eager to participate in what Hirsch calls an implicit shakedown scheme that is called access journalism in which half reporters who got inside the information in turn protected uh, Kissinger by not divulging either the full consequences of his acts or his own connection to them. Kissinger's approach to the press was his approach to Nixon, sniveling and, you know, obquisiousness. Uh, uh, although Kissinger could vent frustrations on reporters, he could never on his boss. Hirsch quotes H.R. Haldeman, Nixon's chief of staff, remarking that Kissinger was the Hawks' Hawks. Inside of the White House, but touching glasses at the party with his liberal friends, the belligerent Kissinger would suddenly become a peaceful dove. Reviewing one of Kissinger's litany of books, Hillary Clinton in 2014 says, Kissinger, a friend whose counsel she relied upon as Secretary of State, possessed a conviction that we and President Obama share, a belief in the indispensability of a continued American leadership and the service of just a liberal order. Kissinger told USA Today within days that Clinton presumed to be the president in waiting, ran the State Department in the most effective way that I've ever seen. 
The same story notated and noticed a photograph autographed by Obama thinking Kissinger for his continued leadership. It's always valuable to hear the uh, reverent tones in which America's elites speak of their own monsters. When Kissinger of the world uh, passes and when all the Kissinger of the world passes, their humanity, their purpose, their sacrifice are foremost in the minds of the respectable. American elites recoiled in disgust when Iranians in great numbers took to the streets to honor one of their monsters, Hussein Soleimani, after a U.S. drone strike executed the Iranian external security chief in January 2020. Soleimani, who the United States declared to be a terrorist and killed as such, was killed far more people than Timothy McVeigh. But even if we attribute to him all the deaths in the Syrian civil war, never in Soleimani's wildest dreams could he have killed as many people as Henry Kissinger. Nor did Soleimani get a date, Jill State John, who played the Bond's girl Tiffany Case in Diamonds Are Forever. The Kissinger's accent occurred through an obscenity that cannot be diminished. In 1968, when Lyndon Baines Johnson agreed to peace negotiations with the North Vietnamese in a tacit recognition of the nightmare, he, um, building one of two works of his own immediate predecessors, brought to life in Vietnam. Kissinger, an influential Cold War defense uh, intellectual at Harvard, had access to members of the diplomatic delegation to the Paris talks. He actually used it to feed information from the negotiations to Richard Nixon's presidential campaign, who defeated the GOP rival Nelson Rockefeller. Kissinger advised, and despite Kissinger's closer political ties to uh, the call tree around Herbert Humphrey's Nixon Democratic rival, Nixon ran for president, claiming to have a secret plan to end the war. His advisors told Hearst that they were deeply afraid that Johnson and Hanoi would reach an accord before the election. It would save lives in Vietnam, Americans and the Vietnamese, but it would undermine Nixon's hope of exploiting the explosion in domestic anti-war sentiment. Nixon greatly took what Kissinger gave him to make a U.S. proxy regime in Saigon, whose regime peace would destabilize more intransigent. No agreement was reached until 1973, and the war ended in an American humiliation when Hanoi's 1975 victory. It took some balls to give us those tips, Richard Allen, a foreign policy researcher on the Nixon campaign, later reflected to Hirsch. After all, it was a pretty dangerous thing for Kissinger to be screwing around with national security. Every single person who died in Vietnam between autumn of 1968 and the fall of Saigon, all who died in Laos and Cambodia, where Nixon and Kissinger secretly expanded the war within months of taking office, as well as all who died in the aftermath, like the Cambodian genocide and their destabilization set into motion, died because of the policies set forth by Henry Kissinger. 
We will never know what might have been the questions Kissinger's apologists and those in the U.S. foreign policy elite who imagined themselves standing in Kissinger's shoes insist upon who explaining away his crimes. We can only know what actually happened. What actually happened was that Kissinger's materially sabotaged the only chance for the end of the war early in 1968 as he hedged a bet to ensure he would achieve power in Nixon's administration or Humphreys. A true tally will probably never be known for everyone who died so that Kissinger could become the National Security Advisor. Once in the White House, Nixon and Kissinger found themselves without leverage to produce a peace accord with Hanoi. In the hopes of manufacturing one, they came up with the madman theory. The idea that North Vietnam would negotiate peace after they came to believe Nixon was adventurous and bloodthirsty enough to risk it all. In February of 1969, weeks after taking office and lasting through April of 1970, U.S. warplanes secretly dropped 111 tons, a thousand tons of bombs on Cambodia. By the summer of 1969, according to Colonel of Joint Staff Kissinger, who had no constitutional role in the military chain of command, was personally selecting bombing targets. Quote, not only was Henry carefully screening the raids, he was reading the raw intelligence. End quote. Now that is coming from Colonel Ray B. Sitton, and he told this to Hirsch for the Prince of Power. A second phase of bombing continued until August of 1973, five months after the final U.S. combat troops withdrew from Vietnam. By then, the U.S. had killed an estimated 100,000 people out of a population of only 7 million. The final uh, phase of bombing, which occurred after the Paris Peace Accords mandated the U.S. withdraw from Vietnam, was its most intense an act of cruel vengeance from a thwarted superpower. Cambodia, like Laos before, was formerly neutral country, meaning that the bombing, it was an illegal aggression under the United States Charter. But beyond the control of the uh, uh, Prince uh, Shanuku, the North Vietnamese used Cambodian territory for the Ho Chi Minh Trail, weapons pipeline not unlike the one America is currently operating for Ukraine. In April of 1970, following a coup by American client Colonel Alain Noyle that overthrew Shanaku, Nixon ordered U.S. troops in Vietnam to invade in Cambodia outright. In the air or the ground, they were unable to destroy the trail, only human beings. Those who survived reacted. Sometimes the bombs fell and hit little children, and their fathers would be all for the Kong Rug. A former Kama Rule Cotterite told historian Ben Cameron, founder of Yale University of Genocide Studies Program. Nixon and Kissinger's failure in Cambodia prompted in 1971 the U.S. South Vietnam invasion into Laos. Another failure. Kissinger later blamed the defeat on the U.S. clients rather than the people like, let's say, himself. In retrospect, I have come to doubt whether the South Vietnamese ever really understood what we were trying to accomplish, Kissinger wrote in his memoirs. 
Now at the time, the streak at bombing of Cambodia was a startling offense that prompted substantial political backlash when it became public. One of the articles of the impeachment against Nixon prepared by the House Judiciary Committee in 1974 held that the bombing of Cambodia was a constitutional usurpation of Congress war powers. But only on June, July 30th, the committee ended up rejecting Article 26 votes uh, to 12, and it never became part of the the impeachment effort that ended up being stopped when Nixon resigned. Forty years later, and likely as a consequence, U.S. presidents routinely now bomb countries that the U.S. is not currently at war with. They provide the barest minimum of disclosure that the bombs have fallen, and often not even that. When the U.S. declared wars fail, as they did in Iraq and Afghanistan, the architects and stewards blame the client materials uh, and the client uh, militaries and the governments that they uh, propped up. They cover their troop withdrawals with futile bombing campaigns that kill people so American statements can save face. Whether he realized it or not, when the President Biden of July of 2021 blamed the Afghans for losing the Afghanistan war, the Afghan military collapsed, sometimes without trying to fight, was a typical line he was reaching for Nixon as Kissinger's template. Kissinger played a role in the deaths of so many different people that treating each with his due consideration requires almost writing a book. Here's one example of many of the sort of carnage Kissinger inflicted indirectly than by edict. In 1971, the Pakistani government waged a campaign of genocide to suppress the independence movement in what would become Bangladesh. Pakistan's Yakan, an architect of genocide, was valuable to the Nixon administrations and Nixon's ambitions of restoring diplomatic relations with China. So the U.S. let Kong's forces rape and murder at least 300,000 people and perhaps 3 million. We can't allow a friend of ours and China's to get screwed in conflicts with friends of India's, Nixon quoted Kissinger as he said, shrugging. That perspective typified Kissinger. The Cold War was a geopolitical balance among two great powers. The purpose of the Cold War statecraft was to maximize America's freedom of actions to inflict Washington's will on the world in a zero-sum contest. That means restricting the ability of the Soviet Union to inflict Moscow without the destabilization or outright Armageddon that would result from pressuring a final defeat of the Soviets. Now, the last part explains much white-ring hostility toward Kissinger. Kissinger represented a anti-communism without ideological zeal. He was energetic, even relentless uh, practitioner of the Cold War and theater of the uh, anti-communist conflicts. But like George Keenan before him, Kissinger thought viewing the Cold War in ideological terms missed the point. The point was American geopolitical dominance something measured in impunity and achieved by any means necessary. That permitted Nixon and Kissinger the the, uh, creativity to reopen China, something Nixon would have uh, demagogued anyone else for attempting besides Kissinger and himself. Now, reopening China was by far 
uh, the greatest achievement of Nixon's foreign policy. It was rare geopolitical initiative where Kissinger was a mere uh, felicitator, uh, says uh, Hirsch in The Prince of Power, calls Nixon the grand theoretician. A, uh, a, um, with Belgium, with Kissinger's, Nixon's occasional operative Kissinger's dramatic secret July 1971 trip to Beijing in advance of Nixon's visit probably renders that description a, you know, a bit promiscuous. But uh, it writes Hirsch, there is no evidence that Kissinger secretly or seriously considered the question of an American-Chinese rapprochement before his appointment as Nixon's national security advisor. Once it happened, Kissinger became an outright celebrity, an overnight celebrity as well, the sort of persona destined to be shrouded in myth and apology. So even though Nixon might not have been motivated by by, by um, ideology or the hatred of communism, he was a reactionary who empowered and enabled the sort of reactionaries from whom anti-communism was a respectable channel for American racists and exploitive social economic traditions. His chief aide on the National Security Council was a rabid anti-communist militarist Army Colonel Alexander Haig, a future Secretary of State for Ronald Reagan, when Kissinger came under attack from neoconservatives and others on the right, who couldn't tolerate the Dante with the Soviets and the reproachment with uh, the Chinese. Neither he nor they recognized that both of them were driven by the Cold War forces that Kissinger stoked himself when it was convenient. Most important of all reactionaries was Nixon, without whom Kissinger would have lacked power, and from whom Kissinger would withstand any indignity. Nixon was actually one of the original Cold War demagogues, the men who never hesitated to identify communism with black people and the Eastern establishment, liberals who postured as allies. His escalation in Vietnam, along with the secret bombings in Cambodia, he revealed in a televised address prompted the resurgence of the anti-war movement. Nixon exploited the mass protests by constraining them with the silent majority of loyal Americans instead of ending the war as he had campaigned on doing and silencing or co-opting the anti-war movement in the process. Nixon inflamed a culture war to distract from it. It was an echo of the infamous Southern strategy to harass uh, people and to harness the for the Republican Party the electoral benefits of what we now call white backlash to the civil rights movement. Nixon was not subtle about what he meant by the Eastern establishment. When the media seized upon the U.S. massacre at uh, Mai Lee, Nixon remarked, it's those dirty, rotten Jews from the New York who are behind it. Nixon's White House counsel, John Urshelin, recalled Nixon talking about Jewish traitors in front of Kissinger, including Jews at Harvard. Kissinger would assure the boss he was one of the good ones. Well, Mr. President, uh, Leichman quoted to him responding, there are Jews and Jews. Kissinger maintained his standing inside of the party by savaging the Eastern establishment from which he emerged. It was not entirely cynical. Kissinger shared with Nixon a contempt for defeatism 
and pessimism. And those who um, flinched at the unsavory Vietnam War, they once supported. He rationalized his purges of the National Security Council bureaucracy and his uh, marginalization of the State Department measure that made him uh, indispensable to foreign policy and to Nixon as protecting American power for those who lacked the confidence to wield it. It is revealing that among those who make U.S. foreign policy, Kissinger's perspective is not considered ideological. Kissinger's uh, consolidation of bureaucratic control was punitive and a bit paranoid. He used the fear of internal leaks to get the FBI to wiretap his staff and the journalists he suspected of receiving their information. Yet the Eastern establishment around Kissinger on his staff or in the press followed him like a puppy seeking a ear scrap. His uh, cold-blooded American exceptionalism was the perfect tone for speaking to a shaken ruling class. Anthony Lake, who will go on to become the National Security Advisor to Bill Clinton, finally quit in May of 1970 alongside his colleague Roger Morris. Now, their breaking points were the Vietnam escalation, uh, Nixon's alcoholism, and this, uh, this superstitious White House wiretaps that Nixon also pursued to enforce loyalty. But Lake and Morris opted not to go public. I consider the failure to do so to be the biggest failure of my life, Morris told Hirsch for the Prince of Power. We didn't do so on the single calculation that it would destroy Henry weeks later. Kissinger via Hague had the FBI wiretap Lake. Now in Southwest Asia, Kissinger destroyed, but in Chile, he helped build a template for the world in which we currently live. So on September 4th, 1970, Chileans elected the Democratic Socialist Salvador Allende. The president, Allende program was more than redistribution. It actually demanded reparations from the United States for exploiting it. Chile is rich in copper, and by the mid-1960s, 80s to present uh, of its copper, uh, 80% of its copper, Production was controlled by American corporations, particularly the firms Anaconda, Cooper, and Concoct. When um, Allende nationalized mining assets held by the coup companies, Allende informed them that he would deduct estimated excess profits from a compensatory package he was willing to pay the firms. It was this sort of unacceptable policy that prompted Kissinger to remark during an intelligence meeting about two months before Allende's election, I don't see why we need to stand idly by and watch a country go communist due to irresponsibility of its own people. So Kissinger meant that there must be, or there never must be an example of a country in America's sphere of influence delivering socialism through the ballot. Henry saw Allende as being a far more serious threat than Castro. 
Kissinger's staff, Morris told Hearst, Allende was a living example of a democratic social reform that could actually work in Latin America. Kissinger and the CIA then decided to overthrow Allende just days after the democratic election. Upon learning what was in motion, the U.S. ambassador in Santiago, Edward Corey, who was the second to none in opposing Andino, uh, cabled, Kissinger, uh, cabled Kissinger that to actively encourage a coup could lead the U.S. to a Bay of Pigs-like failure. An apologetic Kissinger told Corey to stay out of the way, according to Tim Wainer's Legacy of Ashes, the history of the CIA, when the CIA failed at what Corey teamed a Rube Goldberg gamblet to get Chilean Congress to stop Allende from taking office. That's right. The CIA tried a January 6th in Chile, hanging urge to a boss to purge the key left-wing dominated slots in the agency. Now, Corey was wrong in the end. Kissinger's policy of overthrowing Allende was uh, why not support extremism, he spitballed in December 1970. In a White House meeting with the CIA's covert operations chief, Tom Carmises, paid off on September 11, 1973, when the military junta took power, prompting Allende's suicide, who would be among the first of 3,200 Chileans to die violently under the 17-year regime of Augusto Pinochet and his Carva de Lumarte, to say nothing of the tens of thousands tortured and imprisoned. In the Eisenhower period, we would be heroes, Kissinger told Nixon in a telephone conversation days after the coup. The same week, he denied at the Senate confirmations hearing that the U.S. had played any role in the coup. The coup was only the beginning. Within two years of Pinochet's regime, invited uh, militant freeman Arnold Hager and the other economics. Uh, he invited Milton Friedman, uh, Arnold Hegemer, and other economists from the University of Chicago to advise them Chile pioneered the implementation of their agenda. Severe government budgetary austerity, relentless assaults on organized labor, privatization of state assets, including health care, public pensions, layoffs of government employees, abolition of wages and the price controls, and deregulation of all capital markets. So multinationals were not only guaranteed the right to repatriate 100% of their profits, but given the guaranteed exchange rates to help them do so. Graydon writes in his book, Empire's Workshop, European and American bankers flocked to Chile before its 1982 economic collapse. The World Bank and the American Development Bank loaned Pinochet $3.1 billion between 1976 and 1986. As Corey Robin has documented, uh, Frederick von Hayek, neoliberal Mount Perlin Society, held a 1981 meeting in the very city where the junta plotted the replacement of the democratic socialism with a hairbringer of today's global economic order. Pinochet's torture chambers were the 
the uh, maternity ward of neoliberalism, a baby delivered bloody and screaming at the hands of Henry Kissinger. This was the jest and liberal world order Hillary Clinton considered Kissinger's life work. He was no less foundational in pursuing the frontiers of where American military power could operate. It turned out the secret bombing of Cambodia and Laos, which lasted years, represented a template. When Nixon in 1970 revealed the secret bombings, it was a step too far, even uh, step too far for even Thomas Schilling, one of the Pentagon's favorite defense academics, who called them sickening. As Graydon writes in Kissinger's Shadow, the Cambridge to Washington set was not prepared in 1970 to accept that the U.S. had the right to destroy an enemy, safe haven, in a country that it is not at war with and to do it all in secret, thereby shielding a war from the basic public scrutiny. Now, after 9-11, those assertions became accepted, foundational pillars of what was known to be called the War on Terror, permitting four presidents to bomb indiscriminately, most of the time in secret, for 20 years, Pakistanis, Yemenis, Somalians, Libyans, Syrians, and many, many, many others. Kissinger met with Pinochet in Santiago in June of 1976. It was time of rising U.S. congressional anger at Pinochet's rage of terror. Kissinger informed the general that he was obliged to make an, you know, a criticism of his to foretell the adverse legislation. My evaluation is that you are a victim of all the left-wing groups around the world, Kissinger said, according to a declassified cable, and that your greatest sin was that you overthrew a government in which was going communist. Three months later, U.S. diplomats warned Kissinger about Operation Condor, an international campaign of right-wing assassinations pursued by the anti-communist regimes of Chile, Argentina, and Uruguay. Kissinger instructed that no further action would be taken on this matter. According to a September 16, 1976 cable, five days later, a car bomb emplaced by Pinochet's agents detonated alongside Washington, D.C.'s Embassy Row, killing Orlando Lettner, Allende's former minister, and his American co-worker, Ronnie Moffat. In 1999, Pinochet was arrested in London through an effort by the uh, Boxer Garzon, a Spanish judge investigating Operation Condor. Kissinger urged the British not to extradite the general. I'd be very happy if Pinochet was allowed home, he told an interviewer. This episode has gone on long enough and all my uh, sympathies are with him. Two years later, the administration of George W. Bush responded uh, consummately to the Chilean Supreme Court's effort to compel Kissinger to testify. It is unjust and ridiculous that a uh, distinguished servant of this country should be harassed by foreign courts in this way, an official told the Daily Telegraph. The paper noted that Kissinger was an informal advisor to George Bush, as he was to many of the U.S. presidents. Bush declarations of the protection of Kissinger, coupled with his rejection of the Rome Treaty on the International Criminal Court, extinguished a glimmer of hope that Kissinger would someday join 
Pinochet under arrest. It was always a fantasy. The international architect that the U.S. and its allies established after World War II shorthanded today as the rules-based international order. Somehow, never get around to applying the same pressure on the hemogenic United States as applies to the U.S. hostile or defiant powers. It reflects the organizing principle of American exceptionalism. America acts, it is not to be acted upon. Henry Kissinger was the supreme architect of the rules-based international order. In that regard, Kissinger was the singular but by no means unique. Kissinger built upon foundations constructed by Henry Martigou, Dean Atkinson, George Kennan, Paul Nutz, and the Dulles Brothers, the Bundy Brothers, JFK. You could go back to Albert Thayer, Mayan, and Teddy Roosevelt if you wanted to, or even James Monroe. Or depending on how fundamental you think the U.S. empire is to America, you could even go back to 1619. He was, a, he and Nixon chose to escalate Vietnam and to pursue the destruction of Cambodia. But the Pentagon Papers showed that the Vietnam War was the result of a compounding decision made in the Eisenhower, Kennedy, and the Johnson administrations. The Vietnamese guerrilla and the Justice Minister Trang Nu Tang writes in the Viet Cong Vien memoir that Kissinger, whose intellect he praises, inherited a conceptual framework from his American and French predecessors that led him to disaster. Kissinger and Nixon turned that into Watergate. As Graydon pointed out earlier in the story, Watergate began with a demand for vengeance on Dale Ellsberg, the anti-Kissinger for leaking the Pentagon Papers. Watergate was a grim demonstration for neither the first nor the last time that the crimes of the American commits abroad have a dialectical relationship with the crimes that America commits at home. Infamy has many fathers as victory. That ultimately is why Henry Kissinger died as a celebrity, with wealth necessary to get taken by Theron's. It is why Roger Morris and Anthony Lake opted against telling the country that the commander-in-chief was an alcoholic who was secretly surveilling his real and imagined critic. Whenever Kissinger uh, origins, whatever rants about Jew boys he had to endure Kissinger was an exemplar of the self-confident geopolitical potency that Americans elites, whatever they might personally think of Henry Kissinger, what America to make the world respect. When Roger Morris and Anthony Lakes and Hillary Clinton see Henry Kissinger, they see, despite what they routinely and ubiquitously acknowledge as his flaws, themselves as they wish to be. Kissinger lived for over a half of century in the world he made. He was its hubris. He could see that the Iraq war would be a disaster, but he went along with it anyway, declaring the case for removing Iraq's capacity of mass destruction as extremely strong. Kissinger's calculation expressed in the noblest possible way is the acceptance of an impending disaster is the price of influencing and hence mitigating it. His accommodation to the inevitability of political decisions he thought were folly 
hearkened back to his 1968 embrace of Nixon. What were the lives of the Vietnamese and the Cambodians or the Iraqis compared to Kissinger's opportunity to help shape history? But Iraq and the broader war on terror that Kissinger wanted to expand, lease it pitter out into an intelligence operation while the rest of the region gradually slides back to the pre-1911 pattern, precedes the world Kissinger made coming apart at the foundations. The man who repositioned U.S. foreign policy as a wedge between Russia and China lived long enough to see the February 4th Declaration uniting Moscow and Beijing. The reactionary forces he encouraged at home and abroad are showing the world that the rules-based international order is about capitalism, not actually about democracy. Whatever bitterness Kissinger had in his final days, whatever bitterness he experienced over the erosion of his enterprise is a little comfort to the millions of his victims. America denied them the closure Caitlin Trainer experienced when America declaring justice ended with Timothy McVeigh. If you want to get a fuller reading of Henry Kissinger and not just the glowing portrayal that you will see on both the establishment left and the establishment right, you can go and read a book by the late uh, Christopher Hitchens called The Trial of Henry Kissinger where it lists every uh, thing that Kissinger was responsible was for when it comes to what we now call the military-industrial complex, what we call forever wars, and you can make a determination of yourself, for yourself, if this man should be praised for his uh, brilliance or if he should be... Uh, spoken upon with great shame to us all. As I started the show and talked about George Santos and the things that he seemed to get away with and him being held accountable, and then I juxtaposed that with Bob Menendez and the things he seemed to have gotten away with and him not being held accountable, and I made the comparison to uh, the current president and the things that he has knowingly lied about and not been held accountable. And even the previous president and the lies he told in not being held accountable. I want to ask the larger question to you and me. What does it mean if we keep propping up lies, liars, and the lying liars? Thank you for tuning in, and I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Of course, if you want to support the show, you can do so by going to www.patreon.com and getting a membership for as little as $3 a month. Again, that's www.patreon.com slash The Darrell McLean Show.
The Jerome McLean Show is fully listener-supported, independent media that won't lead you to tribalism. Get a membership and support independent media at www.patreon.com slash The Jerome McLean Show.